Welcome to Everyday Law, the show where we cover what's important for everyday positive interactions with the legal system. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, a caveat at the start. This show and the opinions that are evinced on the show are not the opinions of Howard County Community College. And further, any discussions we have about the law are not legal advice. And if you need legal advice, it's imperative that you speak to an attorney. The things that we say may have application in your individual situation, but nonetheless, we'd always recommend you speak to a lawyer. Today on our show, we're going to have a discussion on a fairly important topic, particularly this time of year. There is an increased incidence of driving while under the influence and intoxicated in the summertime, and knowing the law and knowing the procedures is vitally important to ensuring that you do not get arrested for drinking and driving. The guest today on the show is Alan Steinhorn. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you, Bob. Pleasure to be here. So let's take it right from the start, Alan. It's against the law to drink and drive in Maryland. Isn't that right? It's against the law to drink and drive in Maryland such that you are impaired in your driving. What does that generally mean? Well, it means that if you are pulled over while driving and if an officer detects alcohol on your breath or if there's evidence that you've been drinking or if you respond to the officer's question by saying, yes, I've had some drinks, then the officer is allowed under Maryland law to ask you to exit the vehicle and participate in a series of field sobriety tests to see whether your driving has been impaired. It is not illegal in Maryland to drink and drive. It is illegal in Maryland to drink to the point of impairment and drive. It sounds like a bit of a subtle distinction. It can be. Generally, studies show that a person of average weight can drink about one ounce of alcohol per hour without being impaired. If you are a small person, uh, if you are lightweight, these numbers could change. But that's generally the model that is used. But breath tests that are administered with a breathalyzer machine are able to measure your alcohol content. And in the state of Maryland, if your alcohol content is 0.07, you can be found guilty for driving while impaired. If your alcohol content is found to be 0.08 or higher, you can be convicted of driving under the influence of alcohol, and that's even a more serious charge. So do you have any sort of practical rule of thumb other than the one ounce thing? I mean, I weigh 200 pounds. How much could I drink at a bar in a three-hour period of time and not run afoul of the law? Well, I would urge anyone asking that question to be overly cautious and to try very hard to not get close to the line but stay well below it. In fact, one of the things I would suggest— When someone is drinking alcohol, oftentimes the alcohol effect affects your judgment. So you might start off saying, well, I'm going to go out with my friends and I'll be careful and I have one drink per hour. But by the third hour, it's made you a little bit less good on your judgment and your inhibitions are lowered and you might not notice that you're drinking two drinks an hour. So the absolute best rule is no drinking, no driving have a designated driver, have the Uber and Lyft apps on your smartphones, and spend $5 for a cab ride instead of $5,000 for a ride to the courthouse. So you're saying that getting arrested for driving while under the influence or intoxicated can be an expensive proposition? The consequences are now so extreme 
that I don't recommend anyone drink and drive. I think that you have to have a designated driver or some alternative means of transportation. If you are able to have a drink or two with dinner and that's it, that's probably okay. What I would say is that since the early 1980s, the laws in Maryland and nationwide have changed dramatically in terms of alcohol and driving and enforcement. There's been an awareness over the last 30 to 40 years that drinking and driving offenses are harming thousands and thousands of families. At one point, I believe there were more than 50% of all fatalities and traffic accidents were caused by drunk drivers. Those numbers have changed as enforcement has increased. But in the early 1980s, an organization called Mothers Against Drunk Drivers became very well-known and very effective at educating the, tr- the public as to all the harm drinking and driving offenses cause. So we've reached a point in society where enforcement of drinking and driving laws is extremely high on the police officers' lists. And you'll see on a Friday or Saturday night an increased enforcement of drinking and driving uh, laws. When you ask me if it's expensive, I believe the Washington Post did an analysis of drinking and driving offenses and how much it costs the person involved. And I believe they said that it's in the neighborhood of five to $10,000 for each offense. The amount of emotional stress that my clients feel when they're in this situation is worth more than that. So when we're talking about expense, obviously you may have to pay an attorney to go to court for you. You, you will. You'll pay thousands of dollars to an attorney. And is the rate a function of time or is it a rate, a rate is a function of how many DUIs you've had or how is that typically arrived at by attorneys? Well, different lawyers do have different charges for this offense. But if it's your first offense, you're generally going to get the lower expense, the lower charge. But as the multiplication of charges occur, if you have a lot of charges, if it's your second or third or fourth offense, there's going to be more time involved. The attorney's going to charge more money. Suffice it to say that you will spend thousands of dollars on legal fees for even a first-time offense. You will pay hundreds of dollars for an alcohol evaluation because anyone that's going before a judge should have an alcohol evaluation done by a counseling center that is approved by the state of Maryland. Every judge that hears a DWI case is going to expect the attorney representing the defendant to give them a report of the person's evaluation by someone approved by the state of Maryland. That way the judge knows that the person is not an alcoholic, or if the person is an alcoholic, the judge knows and can take other remedial steps to make sure the person doesn't harm the public. So you're going to have to have an alcohol evaluation. In many instances, you're going to be asked to participate in a program, whether it's a six-week alcohol education program, or if it's a more severe offense, it could be a 26-week program. There are instances where people who have had multiple offenses in order to avoid extra jail time will go to in-house residential treatment programs. And if you are ordered to do these programs, you might have hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of additional costs just doing the treatment programs that the court orders. And I presume that being convicted of these offenses can have an effect on your insurance rates as well. Not only your insurance rates, but you can lose your license. If you're convicted of driving under the influence of alcohol and the judge does not give you a probationary status that avoids points, and we can discuss that, that's something called a PBJ. But if you get an outright conviction for a driving under the influence, which is a violation of the transportation article, section 21902A, you will get 12 points on your license. And 12 points is the amount of points at which your license will be suspended. You will lose your right to drive. So is there anything you can do about that? Get a good lawyer. Okay. So is it a good lawyer because the lawyer can beat the charge or because the lawyer can persuade the judge to somehow give you a 
a result or a disposition that avoids the 12 points? Or, or, or is there a way if you get 12 points that, you know, you're working and supporting your four children and you need to be able to drive to work? Uh, is there a way around that from the Motor Vehicle Administration standpoint? Well, it's a combination of everything you've just said. A An experienced drinking and driving lawyer is going to be able to analyze all the facts of your case to determine whether or not the police did everything right. When we think about a criminal defense lawyer, what a criminal defense lawyer is really trying to do is to hold the government to the law. So when you hear about people saying, oh, I got off on a technicality, what that means is that the authorities, the government, did not follow the rules. And that's what our legal system, our criminal justice system is about. There are rules. They have to follow those rules. So if a police officer fails to inform a driver of his legal rights prior to taking a breathalyzer test. If he fails to inform him of all those legal rights, the breath test may not come into evidence. Additionally, there are certain elements to drinking and driving offenses. If someone is in a car accident and the police arrive at the scene after the person has exited the car, there are defenses available to that driver that might not exist when someone is pulled over for speeding. Suppose there are four people in a car there's a car accident. All four people get out of the car and they're sitting on the curb when the police officer arrives. Well, who drove the car? What if all four people, three of them are sober and one of them is intoxicated? Who drove the car? Is the person obligated to say, me, sir, I drove it, I drove it. That's what I was going to ask you. If there are four people and three are sober and the police come and say, who was the driver? Are you obliged to tell the truth to the police? I don't think you have to volunteer anything. Okay. You can just stand up and not answer. So as a practical matter, if you are not pulled over behind the wheel when you are impaired or intoxicated, uh, you might not want to volunteer a lot of information about your driving status and your drinking status. You are required to give them your driver's license. You're required to give them the registration. But you could simply say, officer, I have nothing to say at this point in time. I'd like to talk to a lawyer. At the point at which you request a lawyer, they really can't ask you many more questions. One of the more common ways that people get acquitted in drinking and driving cases will be when there is an accident and an injury. The driver is taken away by ambulance. Perhaps there are two or three people in the car, and they're all taken by ambulance to the hospital. If the officer can't determine who was driving the car, that crucial element of proof will be missing. Okay. And you have to have testimony in court identifying the driver because drinking and driving requires proof of drinking and, and driving, driving simultaneously i bet so if you don't have the driving you can't get a conviction we've not mentioned the most important thing and that is your liberty okay yes it's going to cost you a lot of money but the more troubling aspect is that you can go to jail for these offenses okay if you are pulled over in a county that has a high population, it's less likely for a first offense you'll go to jail. But there are many counties in Maryland, some of the southern counties, some of the eastern shore counties, some of the northern counties, that you may even go to jail for a first offense. So in many respects, the consequences of your drinking and driving play a role in your sentence. Well, the circumstances of what happened. Okay. If you're pulled over because you've got a broken taillight, you weren't driving erratically, you have a good driving record. You're 22 years old. You've been driving for six years. You've never gotten a ticket. And it turns out that you blow a .07. That would meet the definition of a driving while impaired offense. The driving while impaired offense is a violation of 
the transportation article, section 21902B, and that states that you could get up to 60 days in jail and $500 in fines. Wow. But if you are a first offender and there's no really horrible facts, like you ran over someone in a crosswalk or you did something like you swerved into opposing traffic and caused a truck to swerve out of the way and hit a tree, if you've just been pulled over for a minor offense and you haven't been driving erratically and it's your first offense and you do the things that your lawyer recommends before going to trial. You get an evaluation, and the evaluation by the mental health counselor says you don't have a drinking problem. You enroll in a six-week course. If you do the kinds of things that demonstrate to the court that you're not a danger to the public, that you're taking this seriously and doing everything you can to make up for it, you're unlikely to go to jail. And in fact, you might end up with a disposition. Disposition is the sentence of a probation before judgment. And if you get a probation before judgment, you won't get any points on your record, and there will not be a conviction on your record. With this probation before judgment thing, I've heard that a couple of times on this show previously with some other guests. I go to court and I plead guilty and the judge gives me probation before judgment. Does that mean I'm completely off the hook or are there conditions attached to probation before judgment or how does it work, practically speaking? Well, if you can't get an acquittal, the best next thing for acquittal means a not guilty right correct if you can't be found not guilty the next best thing is a probation before judgment and it's kind when i when i first started practicing law i thought it was kind of an odd kind of thing in that you you could admit your guilt to a judge or you could choose to have a case tried and you could be convicted but let's take the plea because this is the thing that always struck me as so odd your honor i'm guilty of sin i was drinking and i was driving And the judge says, all right, I accept your guilty plea, but I'm going to strike it. I'm going to erase it. Somebody give me an eraser from the 1960s. And you get an eraser. And he erases it. He says, but I'm putting you on probation. We're going to enter probation before judgment. And you're going to have to be on probation for 12 months. I want you to see a probation agent. I want you to do the six-week alcohol evaluation course, alcohol education course. And I want you, most of the judges will want you to participate in a Mothers Against Drunk Driving meeting where a parent who has lost a child tells the audience, mostly people that have been convicted of drinking and driving offenses, the effect that had on them. And most of the people that I've represented that have been to them said they're very powerful and very impactful and kind of hard to take. But when you get probation before judgment, you're still probably going to have to pay a fine. You're probably going to have to participate in an alcohol education program. And it's not like you just walk away without consequences. There are consequences, but you don't get points on your license, and you can honestly say, I've never been convicted of a crime. So I would presume, you know, it's probation. I understand that part that you have these conditions that you have to adhere to, but it's before judgment. In other words, you're giving me probation without me being guilty. That's right. Is that something that I kind of have to voluntarily embrace in court? I mean, can I say no to that, or how does that work? Well, you could say no. I think you'd be a little sadomasochistic to say I'd rather go to jail than, or, or I'd rather have the points and I'd, you know, I'd like you okay. to punish me further. But it's basically – it's intended really for first offenders, for people that really aren't going to be involved in the justice system again. If the judge feels that you're worthy of it, that he feels that it's appropriate or she feels it's appropriate for you to have this outcome – then the judge can impose the sentence on you. I will tell you there are some judges in the state that won't give probation before judgments in drinking and driving offenses. So 
one of the odd things I've learned over the years, and I think almost any attorney that does this kind of work will tell you, is that oftentimes the outcome, that is your sentence, depends on which judge you got. Can you judge shop? A short answer would be no. A longer answer would be, well, maybe. And the maybe is that if you appear before a judge in the district court, and that's where these cases originate, in the district court. Where Which is the lower of the two trial yes, courts. Yes, it's where misdemeanors are tried. There's no jury trial available. But if you are charged with a 21902A offense, any offense that has- The heavier offense, right? Yes, um, the drink, driving while under the influence. If you are charged with an offense that has more than six months incarceration, you're entitled to a jury trial. So suppose you're in a court in a court in a county where you know that Judge Smith is a hanging judge on DWI offenses where there's a car accident, and your client came up to a red light and struck the rear of another car because they didn't realize the cars were stopped in time, no injuries, but you know this judge is not going to give you probation before judgment and is probably going to sentence your client to five days in jail. Well, it might be beneficial to pray a jury trial. At that point, the district court is divested of its jurisdiction, meaning that it can no longer hear your case. You've requested a jury trial, and the district court doesn't have juries. So the case is transferred to the circuit court, and the circuit court judges and state's attorneys would rather spend the majority of their time prosecuting robbers, rapists, murderers, bank robbers, people that are committing serious and violent offenses. So they will usually try and work out an acceptable plea arrangement with you so that they don't have to spend three or four hours trying a case. In the busier courts across Maryland, they can't try every case. In fact, in most courthouses, they can't try every case. If you go to the Eastern Shore, you might walk into a courtroom for a nine, nine o'clock docket and there might be three people. If you go to Upper Marlboro and you're in the district court for Prince George's County, you might walk in a courtroom and see 30 or 40 people. If every person said they wanted a trial that day, the court system would break. So when you pray a jury trial and go to the circuit court, oftentimes they will give you a better plea offer than you might have gotten in district court. But you can't make that blanket generalization. If you know that you're going to have a bad outcome in the district court because you got a, a bad judge, it's much better to take a risk that you'd get a better judge, better prosecutor with a better plea deal in the circuit court. How do you find out if you have a bad judge? Experience of lawyers that try cases in those courts. As an attorney, if you're in a county where you don't try as many cases, you might call the public defender's office a few days before trial. They're very friendly and ask them which judges are going to hammer your client under the facts of the case. Well, let's take the practical approach now and talk about somebody getting pulled over. So I'm driving along. You mentioned somebody who's 22, been driving six years, clean record. I have a broken taillight and the police officer pulls me over for the broken taillight. Now, well, it seems pretty clear that whatever I've had to drink has had no effect on the taillight. So I'm a little confused about how you segue from a broken taillight to a DUI. Is it because they smell my breath or, or what happens? Most of the time it has to do with smelling your breath. So when the officer smells alcohol in your breath, the first question is going to be, have you had anything to drink? What if you say no? The officer's still going to ask you to exit the car. He's going to observe you as you exit the car. He's going to observe you when he says, I'd like your driver's license and registration. So if you fumble and that sort of thing, that's not a good thing. That's right. If you fall out of the car, that's going to be bad. Okay. But if you get out of the car properly, if you have a mild odor of alcohol on your breath, the officer's probably still going to be allowed to ask you to do the field sobriety tests. The field sobriety tests are often a nystagmus test, which is a test 
uh, where the officer will take a pencil or his finger and move it across your eyes, and he watches the movement of your eyes. When a person is intoxicated, the movement of the eyes is different than when they're sober. So is this something that's scientifically established? Well, yes and no. There are many courts, and in Maryland, you can't introduce the nystagmus test to show or prove that the person is drunk, but you can introduce it to show that there's a probability they've been drinking and impaired. So it allows you to go on to additional testing. The kinds of testing they do would be heel-to-toe test, where you walk 10 steps, and don't ever say to an officer, officer, I can't even do these tests when I'm sober. Okay, that's no excuse. That's then. not a good thing to say because the officer will infer that you're not sober. What What if you have a physical impairment in your walking capabilities? You have a broken foot or some sort of, you know. You have to say that right up front. Okay. Officer, I, I'm happy to try and do this test, but I want you to know that I had knee surgery a couple years ago and I have difficulty with my right knee and I can't walk. They may try and give you tests that don't have to do with physical movement say the alphabet backwards. I want you to count from 50 to 70. I want you to start at 53. Okay. Sometimes they'll ask you to do things that involve multiple tasks at once because it's harder to do two things at once when you're intoxicated. So is there some body of law or scientific knowledge that suggests that these are appropriate tests for determining intoxication? Yes. There is a manual produced by the National Transportation Safety Board on drinking and driving. Okay. And officers that are trained, and I believe pretty much all of them are, they are trained in how to spot drinking and driving offenders, and they are trained how to give the tests. That is one way that a good attorney can defeat a drinking and driving charge. The officer has to give you proper instructions to do the tests. And if the officer doesn't give you the proper instructions and he then says that you did the test wrong, the lawyer can point out that the client was never given the instructions. So, so how do you know? I mean, suppose I am drunk and the officer's given me instructions and he gives me bad instructions. How can my lawyer prove that they gave me bad instructions? The officers have to write reports of the incidents. Okay. And before your trial, your attorney will request, it's called discovery, will request all discovery materials from the state. The state is required under numerous Supreme Court decisions to give you all the information they have that both inculpates you, that is that tends to prove your guilt, and exculpates you. So the reports will say that I gave the instructions, and they might even say what instructions they give. What if, what if they don't, and if they just generally say they gave the instructions? Then that's an argument you can make to the judge. Okay. And if your client, um, very few clients will ever testify in a drinking and driving ta- case because then they can be cross-examined by the state. And you don't, a defendant that takes the stand has to answer truthfully. So if your client has had enough drinks that would create a violation under the article in the section, then you don't want them to have to answer the question, how many drinks did you have? Because then either they're going to commit perjury and say, oh, I only had one or two, or they're going to answer truthfully, I had six or seven, and you're going to be convicted. So you can't take the fifth on part of your testimony? In other words, you can't take the stand and say, he didn't give me those instructions, and then when they ask you how many drinks you had, say, I'm taking the fifth? Um, There's something called opening the door. And if you start testifying, the court could find that you've opened the door to further testimony. Once you start saying he didn't give me the proper instructions, then it would be fair for the state's attorney to ask you about drinking to find out what your perception of events were. If you had 14 beers in two hours, you might perceive the officer's instructions differently than if you had no beers. So once they pull you over and they smell odor of alcohol, 
you know, obviously, if you do well on the test, it's better than if you fall over. If you do well on the test, there's a likelihood you won't be charged. Okay. Typically, the officers, at least the way I've seen it, will write the reports as harshly as they can. Okay. But I do think most of them are trying to be honorable and do the right thing. Okay. So I do the field sobriety tests. And I presume at some point in time, they get around to asking me if I've been drinking. And we've established earlier that I don't really have to answer that question. Can I just say I'm not going to answer that question? You or can. Do I have to invoke a lawyer at that time? You can say I'm not going to answer that question, officer. Okay. But what happens if you refuse to cooperate with the police? And I'm not quite sure what the answer is. But if you were to say, officer, I don't wish to cooperate. I don't wish to do field sobriety tests. If you believe that I violated the law, let me know. Do what you think appropriate. Okay. But if you fail to cooperate with the field sobriety tests and there's no other evidence of drinking, I'm kind of hard-pressed to figure out what evidence would convict you. In order for them to give you a breath test, they have to be able to state probable cause that leads them to believe you've been drinking and driving. And probable cause simply means that the facts show it's more probable than not that something happened. So is the smell of alcohol sufficient? It may be, but it does seem like judges are giving police officers a little more leeway by saying, all right, if you smell alcohol, then they have to do the test. What if you smell like marijuana? There is still enforcement of intoxicated or high driving. So that's one of the toughest things for municipalities and for states to determine how to handle. We know that ingesting marijuana can impair you. So therefore, there are charges, and in Maryland, it's Transportation Article 21902D, I believe, Okay. that has to do with taking illegal drugs and having it affect your driving. So you could be convicted of an impaired driving offense, not from alcohol, but from marijuana, if the officer can demonstrate that you imbibed marijuana and that it impaired your driving. That doesn't sound like that easy a thing to do. Is there some kind of blood test for that? Well, in Colorado and Washington State and California, they're trying to develop tests that would show what amount of THC in one's bloodstream would affect driving, but it's not as scientific as the breathalyzer tests are now. So I would presume if somehow they established you were smoking pot and then you drove erratically, that might be a sufficient basis for a judge to find you guilty of driving whatever, 902D. I think that's correct. I think that if you're driving erratically and they detect marijuana in your system, whether there's marijuana in your car, whether they smell it on your breath, whether you come out of a car and like in a Cheech and Chong movie, the smoke just billows out. If you've been driving erratically, if they can test you and they find differences in the way you're acting, yes, you can be convicted of driving while impaired on drugs. I would like to turn attention to the legendary DR-15 form that I know covers an awful lot of ground and that I think our listeners might be interested in. Before an officer can give you a breathalyzer test, they have to tell you all of the law about your rights to refuse a breathalyzer test. In Maryland, you implicitly consent to taking a breath test if an officer asks you to do it. In getting a license. Correct. But you could refuse to take that test. And if you refuse to take that test, there are penalties for the refusal as well. Okay. And mostly that has to do with your driving privileges. <clears throat> You're going to lose your right to drive. If you take the test and you have a blood alcohol content that's above 0.08, they can suspend your license, but you can get a modification for work or for school <clears throat> or to go to the doctors. 
So you might have a 45-day suspension for a first offense, but you can keep your license to go to school or to go to work. If you refuse a breath test, you do not get that modification. You don't have an opportunity for that. In uh, the 1980s and 1990s, the state of Maryland was, was using DR-15 forms that did not reflect the current law, and many of these forms were found to be deficient. So the DR-15, just to be clear, is a form that you are presented with by the police officer when you, know, when you either consent or don't consent to be tested for alcohol, right? For those of you out here who are familiar with this and have undergone it, it's that pink form. And it's a pretty long form. The reverse of it, I believe, is in Spanish. But basically, the officer reads you that form and says you have a right to take, you have a right to refuse the test. Here are the penalties if you refuse it. And if they don't read you all the penalties and don't explain everything to you that's on that form, you would have a chance at an acquittal. You sign that form at the bottom once the officers read that to you. What What if you refuse? Another interesting issue, I and mean, I've had, had people that refused, and it tends to lend to the argument that they were too drunk to understand that they're merely acknowledging the officer gave them the form. So the DR-15 form is a bit of a problem, and if you're pulled over, you should try and understand it because it can have an impact on your ability to drive and to live your normal life. Yes. You don't ever want to see that pink form. But if you're seeing that pink form, you might want to ask to talk to a lawyer. So I could lose my license to drive and go to court and be acquitted of drinking while driving. That's absolutely correct. That seems ridiculous. Well, you have to think of your driving privilege as being something completely separate from court. And this is one thing that many of my clients don't comprehend at first. You have two different proceedings. You have a proceeding in court where your liberty is at stake. You could be fined. You could be going to jail. You will have a second hearing at the Motor Vehicle Administration conducted by the Office of Administrative Hearings before an administrative law judge who's going to be listening to you and your attorney tell that judge why she shouldn't take your license away. Wow. Don't drink and drive. The best advice I can give you is don't drink and drive. And if you get pulled over, call a lawyer. Call a lawyer. You can even do it while you're pulled over and they're arresting you. Thank you very much, Alan. I appreciate your time and your input. This has been Everyday Law from Howard Community College. Farewell.